time to get dough. We are live here at 11 a.m. in Los Angeles. It is Sunday, April 24th. Thank you to everyone joining us live on the Colin app. Our guest today is Eugene Perrier. If you don't know Eugene after this episode, you're probably going to be going down a rabbit hole of his interviews, articles, speeches. While we wait for audience to join, I want to give a shout out to my mom. Pam Preisner for making all the show art for each episode. Uh, artist Picture Plane did our show artwork, the cool dose artwork, and my mom has been in Photoshop making custom episode art for each one, like the one you're seeing right now on Eugene. Big thank you once again to Televangel for the music. One quick announcement, you're not going to want to miss a show coming up in two days, Tuesday, April 26th at 12.30, 30 minutes afternoon, 12.30 Pacific Time, 3.30 Eastern Standard Time, it's going to be Duncan Trussell live with us and Abby. If you don't know Duncan, the comedian slash purveyor of ancient wisdom, you need to watch right now. The Midnight Gospel on Netflix before Tuesday, so you can get excited about joining on Tuesday. Now here's your host, Abby Martin. Welcome to Dosed, everyone. This is your host, Abby Martin. Freedom. Freedom and democracy. Our entire lives, these concepts have been drilled into our heads as what makes the United States an exceptional country. In fact, why we should be called the so-called leaders of the free world. Our system is so perfect, in fact, we have the right to dictate to every other country how they should run their political systems. For example, the crushing economic blockades on countries like Cuba is 100% justified by the claim that they don't have democracy. Why do we have crushing sanctions on the civilians of Iran? Because they don't have democracy. The U.S. justified its catastrophic invasion of Iraq because they didn't have democracy. In fact, most U.S. military interventions since World War II have been done under the claim of spreading democracy. And here at home, we're told that nothing needs to change when it comes to how we vote, how we participate, how presidential elections are decided, how state and local elections are organized. All of that is deemed perfect. And if you don't like it, vote, baby. Vote, vote, vote. In fact, participation in the American political system is relegated to simply voting every two to four years. 
And the only political action this government encourages people to take outside of voting is to volunteer for the political campaigns for one of the two big corporate parties. How the hell did it get to be this way? And what can we actually do about it? That's what we're going to be dosed on today with our guest Eugene Perrier, a longtime socialist organizer, the author of Shackled and Chained, and the host of The Punch-Out on Breakthrough News, a must-listen-to podcast. Check it out on all podcast platforms. Thank you so much for coming on Dosed, Eugene. Abby, thank you so much for having me. I'm super stoked to be here, uh, and congratulations on, on launching this fantastic new show. I, I, this is my first time on Colin, so I think yeah. this feels yeah. momentous. It is. It is, Eugene. And there's so much stuff to go over in this interview that paints a very different picture, of course, of our country. I mean, the restrictiveness of the two-party system, the electoral college, why states, some states have more power than others, a lack of democratic rights for those living in colonies, gerrymandering, redistricting, voting repression, what it means to have so-called democracy in a country run by monopoly capitalism, media being owned by these same figures. But you know what? Eugene, I want to spend most of our time discussing those things, of course, but I feel like in order to really dose everyone on the reality of our highly undemocratic system, first, let's lay out the historical context and evolution of our democracy, quote unquote, because I think that once people hear us talk about how the present moment was explained by the past, it's all going to fit together. And we can't understand where we are today without understanding how we got here. And of course, you know, um, as historical materialists, I mean, you are such a great person that can fit all of these ideas together, Eugene, and really break it down. And remember, audience, we're going to be taking your calls about what dosed you in life or politics at the end of the show. So don't forget to get in the queue, Eugene. You know, I don't want to spend too much on this first point because I think people are kind of largely aware that the U.S. wasn't really founded as a democracy. But, of course, we have to get this out of the way, right? Because you can't really call something a democracy that, number one, has an enslaved population that has no rights whatsoever, and number two, an indigenous population that not only cannot vote, but is being actively exterminated by the so-called democratic system. And, of course, even white women, white women, rather, weren't able to get the right to vote until like 150 years after the foundation of the U.S. So we know people of African descent, Native Americans, and all women had no democratic rights when our so-called great democracy was established in 1776. But Eugene, who else was excluded from voting? You know, it's a, it's a great question, and it's, a, it's an important issue because we talk and I mean, you know, we talk rightfully so about like the quote unquote democratic tradition. But I mean, it's worth noting that relatively explicitly, the founding fathers weren't looking to found a democracy. I mean, they make what now can seem like a small distinction and one that I think is abused by a lot of people um, that they were looking to set up a republic, not a democracy. Uh, there's one founding father, a guy named Elbridge Cherry, will come up later, he's from Massachusetts. He said democracy was actually the worst of all political evil. And I think what? that's what people think. <laughs> right, that democracy was the worst of all political evils. And this is one of the founding fathers. And there's a bunch of those quotes. And, and you know, more I want to say, but I think that that is just to frame it, what makes our current moment 
so relevant to why this sort of traditional historical view is relevant is the structure they set up then, which was obviously designed to mitigate against, you know, significant change that could change the lives of normal people against the interests of the wealthy and the powerful. Uh, that that is that's what they set up then, and that's what's going on now, more or less. So anyway. Long story short, to get to the issue of the Constitution, I think the easiest way to understand how it was framed is to look at the broad representation of who you had participating in this process, which was by and large a collection, a relatively small collection, uh, you know, less than 2,000 people who set up the whole thing, if you include not only writing the Constitution, but then ratifying it at the state level, were really the most elite people in society. And they were all very interested in freedom from the crown, specifically because the rights and prerogatives that were denied to them because they had no political representation. So in particular, their property, as it were, was constantly at the whims of those over whom they had no control, who uh, were laws being passed by the parliament in England and people being appointed in the country by the king who could, you know, more or less do whatever they want, given the writ that they had against the people who were there. So they were all interested in establishing this new nation really to secure some of the most basic elements of their property. Uh, obvious, obviously, slavery becomes a big issue there. It's sort of a separate story, but an important one. But uh, to get to the heart of what I'm talking about, the, o the overall goal going into setting up the Constitution was to set up a new framework, which would do two things, basically. One, it would guard against what, again, they saw to be the tyrannical nature of England in the fact that just one person or a handful of people uh, without any form of true representative uh, mandate would be able to determine everything in some sort of dictatorial way, especially over over them, that there would be some basic rights that would be established that would be individual rights and property rights that would be sacrosanct in this new document so that there would be an ability to have a representative, smaller, highly elite body of individuals who would be able to amongst themselves, determine sort of a general common direction for where the country was going to go. So that's, you know, one thing that the, uh, they were looking to do. But the other thing they were looking to do was make sure that they set up the government in such a way so that, you know, a very significant number of people, those who they excluded outright, women, slaves, uh, Native American people, by and large, also people who didn't really have property. There were property qualifications <clears throat> excuse me, to vote in pretty much all elections at this time, all up and down colonial America. And this would change, you know, the next 30 or 40 years in the United States in a big way. But at this time, this is a very significant thing. And one of the bigger issues was to restrict the franchise really to those who either owned property, paid taxes, or both, nine times out of ten, and that that sort of body of people would have a particularly privileged way of looking at it. So, I mean, the thing about it and the thing I think that's notable about actually reading about this history is they just more or less laid that out. Uh, I mean, for sure, a lot of people have probably heard of and, you know, get taught about in school. The Federalist Papers, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, maybe people have seen the play. I, 
you know, hope you haven't subjected yourself to the play, but uh, we saw Nancy Pelosi bring Hamilton on stage to to honor January 6th. That that was really meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, one of the main Federalist papers is Federalist 10. And Madison is right in that. And he just says outright, this is the one it's kind of famous because it's about factions and that being kind of a a something that's always going to exist. But it's a bad thing that we need to do something about. And he says in Federalist 10 that the most common and durable source of faction is the unequal distribution of, of property. And that the goal of the government should be regulating those various and interfering interests. So that essentially the entire goal should, of the overarching goal of the US government would have to be to manage the challenges created by the fact that there were going to be rich people and poor people, <clears throat> and that rich people more or less were going to be on top. John Adams, you know, people know John Adams, obviously, so-called patriot, great patriot, uh, said at the time that the Constitution was being written, few men who have no property have any judgment of their own. What (laughs) the hell? Yeah, and it was in a letter to someone, and he went on to say that one of the challenges of getting rid of the property requirements in voting in the United States would be that Every man who has not a dime would demand an equal voice with any other in all acts of state. That that would be a bad thing. The horror. To have an equal voice with people like John Adams and the person he was uh, writing to. Uh, And, you know, honestly, I could go on and on and on. I mean, there's dozens of those quotes. I won't subject people to that. But it gives you a very clear sense of what was going on. And then when you look at the convention itself and the ratification of it, you know, it just sort of doubles down on a number of those different themes with the systems that they set up, the Electoral College, the Senate, uh, you know, that were all designed, the judiciary, that were all designed to, you know, more or less create a number of various breaks on power. I mean, you know, another thing James Madison said is that the, the goal of the Senate should be to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. So the goal of the Senate should be to protect the rich against the poor. Um, so that's kind of the mentality they're bringing in to setting up these various institutions that are still with us today. And the reasoning and the functioning behind all the various rules that sort of govern these different views is that if power was spread around in enough different centers, but limited as much as possible to the narrowest choice that could also command a broad respect amongst enough people for the government to seem legitimate uh, was the way things should go. And I think that's to some degree why you see situations like we have today where you've got 15,000 bridges or whatever it is that could collapse at any time and the government can't even pass a bill to fix all the bridges because the impediments that are structurally embedded in the context of favoring the interests of a minority of people from a particular elite reproduction is exactly what was built in during the era of the founding fathers because that's how they wanted it. They actually thought that was the way to do it. And at that time, you know, compared to much of the rest of the world, that appeared to be quite significant when most of the rest of the world was run under some form of monarchy or other, you know, at that time called absolutism and other things like that, which is why it gained such a revolutionary cast and was happening at the same time as then subsequently the Haitian Revolution, the French Revolution, and the ISD, these bourgeois revolutions that seemed to be turning the old feudal world on its head. So it seemed radical and revolutionary in its own time and context. But when we really look back on what they were doing, they were securing the rights of the new rising elite. 
the people who replaced the feudal lords, the rich commercial merchants, and a state that they wanted to govern and secure their interests that could include other people in society, but only in a much more circumscribed role. So that's sort of the nature of that, and I think the importance of understanding some of that thinking in their own words from the Founding Fathers about why they set up these institutions uh, like the Electoral College and so on and so forth, like the Senate, like the way the House is apportioned and the number of seats and so on and so forth to, you know, all achieve this one goal. Thank you for breaking down all of that because it really is crucial to understand that this was foundationally built this way specifically for that reason. I mean, the kind of minority rule that we hear ad nauseum from Republicans justifying the existence of this archaic system today, actually telling us that they need um, the Electoral College, they need the Senate representation broken down in this way to prevent minority rule over, I don't know what they're talking about, because really what we're looking at is the vast majority of people in this country that are completely usurped, undermined by a minority in these states, the beliefs in general. And it, it is fascinating that this continues to play out today, Eugene. And like you said, I mean, relative to the rest of the world at the time that the Constitution was founded, it was um, a relatively you know, radical document in terms of where we were at, um, politically speaking, let's just say, in the rest of the world. Um, I think the funny thing is Unlike most self-described democracies, there's this kind of fetish around our Constitution as kind of this great, flawless document that can never be questioned, even though, of course, there were so many amendments, right? right? I mean, just the, the fact of how many sheer additions to the Constitution were added later on showed you that there was a lot of faults with the origin of the document, right? Like, it didn't include so many things that we needed to enshrine, obviously, and a lot of those things are very good, right? The First Amendment is is an incredibly important foundational aspect of any democracy. Um, but, you know, I think it's really interesting that for the most part, we have the same exact constitution, almost 200 years old, if you're looking at what the original document was, by these slave owners, right? A lot of them were uh, owned slaves themselves. And the entire Supreme Court's job is basically to, like, look into this Constitution as if it's the sacred uh, crystal ball, rather, where they're, like, surmising what the Founding Fathers really meant or what they would have wanted. It's all about the constitutionality and, like, what, you know, what was the intent behind this language and stuff, you know, 200 years later. It's like, what are, what are we doing here? I mean, you have other countries that are adopting new constitutions, new constitutional referendums. Look at Venezuela. Um, every decade or so, as time continues, as advances are made to cement new gains, I mean, some of them are completely scrapped and voted on in a new one that's more appropriate for, like, where we are at. So I guess just any comments on kind of this obsession and fetishization, I can never say that word, with our Constitution and, like, the lack of consciousness about the fact that it, in a democracy it makes sense to have something that is constantly evolving, yeah, I mean, I agree totally. I mean, really, if you think about it, I mean, of the, you know, almost all of the countries considered to be the quote unquote advanced countries, that's problematic as a term, but, you know, the Western nations, the rich nations, whatever you want to call them, I think the U.S. is about the only one that hasn't revised its constitution sometime in the past 50 or so years. I may have a few off there, but certainly, uh, and then also in other 
parts of the world. I mean, you know, Brazil, obviously, in 1989, Spain in 1975, the post-World War II constitutions all across, uh, you know, Western Europe. Uh, I mean, right now, Chile, of course, is, you know, getting ready to conduct a constitutional referendum. Venezuela has done several uh, in the past several decades. So, I mean, it's really the type of thing, obviously, in South Africa in 1994, that, you know, it makes perfect sense because you just think about, obviously, the founders couldn't even – Irregardless of everything else you could say about them, how could they, and they, I don't think, really did foresee things like modern medicine, space flight, uh, (laughs) flying in planes, right? So obviously, if society has changed that much, don't you think that some of the things you would want to secure as the most basic rights would change as well? I mean, if a constitution is a compact, essentially, about how we're all going to live collectively, you know, at the time the founders were writing, they're you know, people were still letting blood to, to cure diseases. So obviously something like universal health care is not going to be something you would necessarily enshrine as a right because there was no health care really. But, and even what was called health care was sort of semi-health care. Uh, now, obviously, in the context of our hyper-advanced, you know, very wealthy and well-endowed society, I mean, why shouldn't a constitution enshrine social rights uh, as opposed to just individual property and political rights that go along with that, right? Like there's a link between things like the First Amendment and the idea that the Constitution also has something like the Takings Clause, right? Which means that you can't, uh, which is the Fifth Amendment, which you can't take property without due compensation. But if you're thinking about something like the existential threat of climate change, uh, where we have to make significant changes right away, I mean, doesn't it make sense that you might just want to like, take some shit and I'm oh, sorry, I don't know if I can say that on here, uh, yeah. some things, uh, and, uh, you know, use it to actually save the planet as opposed to like pay off Exxon or whatever for their planet destroying technology. Uh, but there's a link between that kind of those two things, because to be secure in your property, you also have to be secure in your person and you have to have the freedom to act as an individual with power against the state. Uh, in a political sense and in the sense of, of the economy. But I, I say all that just to say, why would we not go a step further? There's nothing wrong with political rights. They are good. Um, but why would, in a country where you have millions of empty homes and, you know, on any given day, hundreds of thousands of people sleeping on the street, why, why would you not have secured as a right that people have a right to housing when it's not even really a contradiction um, to create it? Oh, yeah. And you hear you hear that argument constantly made from like just people who, you know, hate homeless people and stuff. They're just like, oh, like housing isn't a right, you know, like health care isn't a right. It's like, yeah, well, maybe it should be, dude. Like just because these dudes didn't foresee our like dystopian (laughs) society, you know, hundreds of years ago in a completely different world where slavery fucking existed. Like, right. it just, the foresight is just amazing. And the status quoism, like the clinging to the status quo and just being like, no, like these things were never rights and they never will be. It's like, oh my God. I mean, at a certain point, we really need to, um, like, really understand what you're saying, which is just absolutely mind blowing how all these things fit together, Eugene. And I, I think it's really important to talk about the period of reconstruction because there was a chance to rectify this kind of dark chapter and and actually forge a real democratic system for all and let's let's go back to that i mean you know we had a, a nation 
founded on centuries of slavery, of course, still had millions of people enslaved. Of course, that couldn't be called a democracy. Um, almost 100 years after the Declaration of Independence and the creation of the United States, we had the Civil War precisely over this issue. Really fascinating podcast series that you and Mike Preisner, um, the producer on the show, have done on Empire Files that I encourage everyone to check out. It is really, really incredible, rich history um, that's done in a really brilliant way. I mean, just talking about this chapter of American history, the fact that 20% of young men died fighting one out of every five people right in this country to finally overturn slavery it took killing over a quarter million pro-slavery militants and basically they only conceded when the confederate leadership had no other choice because they were completely defeated i mean really everyone needs to check this out because it's specifically about the role of black soldiers in the union army and it's a, a very fascinating discussion but it's really relevant today because after the Civil War, there was a new potential for a democracy. The abolitionists won. The rights of African Americans you know, had played such a heroic role um, that could not be denied. And the political situation really necessitated the building of black voting rights and participation in the new system. And so for that moment, there was this, this kind of fork in the road. It's like, do we build a real democratic system with social equity and equality at the center, which was known as Reconstruction, or do we, you know, kind of bungle that like we have everything else and um, pave the way to where we are today? So what ultimately happened to Reconstruction and this great new phase, and uh, what was the outgrowth of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's such a, a notable fact, and it's unknown to so many people, I think, in, in the wide-ranging realities that come from this this time, and when you talk about sort of the legal structure and you think about things that are there, you know, the idea of quote unquote birthright citizenship, you know, which comes really out of the 14th Amendment and also coming out of the 14th Amendment, you know, Roe v. Wade, obviously the civil rights cases. I mean, so much of the, you know, sort of quote unquote jurisprudence or, or legal underpinning of so many various, I think most people would consider positive changes that have happened in the country in, let's say, the past 50 years. You know, so many of them are related to these so-called Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment, the 13th ending slavery, and the 15th giving, uh, at that time, black men uh, the additional right to vote. But nevertheless, so much of that is rooted in this time period that's basically been washed out of history. But, you know, I thought that you described it very well um, in the context, in context that you just laid out. I mean, it was the culmination of uh, central contradiction in the broader constitutional system because, you know, at the time of the Civil War, of course, the sort of issue of, of white men voting had expanded, obviously, far beyond any property requirements and just about everyone could vote. And in many ways, the Civil War was sort of the formation of a lot of our popular politics and popular democratic feel. Um, but obviously, this major contradiction of slavery and broader restrictions on black people in terms of their ability to vote in other parts of the country, that this was ultimately resolved in the interest of Indian slavery. And then there was sort of a, at least a professed recommitment to really what you would argue would be the basic claims of the Declaration of Independence, not so much the Constitution. And I think it, you certainly can see it in Section 1 of the, the 14th Amendment, where it says, that you know, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property 
uh, without due process of the law and on and on and so forth. But the point being that it's an appeal really to the ideals that oftentimes were starkly at odds with what those same people who put those ideal things on paper um, were actually doing in their real life, right? So here's this opportunity to, to say, perhaps let's do something in the spirit, if not the letter of what the founding fathers uh, were said to have represented. Now, of course, there's a lot of loaded phrases here, but just to, I think, give a sense of why Reconstruction in and of itself represents this, this sort of weird memory holding, right? Like, why would you, everything I'm sort of laying out here basically sounds good now, right? Like Declaration of Independence, uh, you know, the spirit of the Founding Fathers, the good things, not the bad things. Like, that all sounds like that would be good if you were saying, yes, America is good and positive and so on and so forth. So the fact that you never hear about it, the fact that it's not really taught in schools, the fact that the relationship of, of even this time period to things that are known and are celebrated uh, in our sort of current popular understanding of what's quote unquote democratic uh, is, is something else must be going on there. Like that's, I think, the thing about Reconstruction that I hope piques people's interest is the fact that maybe they don't know that much about it. And the idea that perhaps, uh, you know, there's some sort of, there, there's something that they shouldn't know. So anyway, long story short, you know, Reconstruction is completely and totally destroyed and the system of Jim Crow is established and essentially a fascist dictatorship in the South over black America is established. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, I think I, I recently wrote an article people can find on, on liberationschool.org specifically about this, this reconstruction piece if you want to get deeper into it. Um, but ultimately what happens is you have these governments, black majority governments in the South, and back then the same way it was during Jim Crow, maybe you've heard even now the phrase the solid South, which is meant to denote the fact that all of the quote unquote red states in the South acting as a block can have a uniquely conservative effect on the broader politics of the country, the solid South then moving the rest of the country in the direction of slavery in the early part of the country, in the direction of Jim Crow in the later part of the era, in the direction of right to work and anti-union and anti-worker pro-poverty wage laws, moving in that direction, which they did now and they're, uh, they're doing now and they've done in the past. It was reversed then. And you had these governments that were based on the interest of the majority of poor, formerly enslaved people who were uh, had an interest in establishing extensive school systems for the first time in the South, establishing the first uh, extensive public health systems in relief to debtors and blocking banks from stealing the cow and the hoe and the plow of the small farmer who might have fallen into debt, protecting the right of workers to contract uh, so they would be able to get their rightfully, you know, laid out wages and ultimately empowering non-elite subsets of people to start serving in political positions uh, in all the various hamlets and towns with the sheriffs and the mayors and city councils and so on and so forth. So essentially saying that in along with, and this is what I was mentioning before about changing the constitution right, that along with democratic rights representing political rights, it also represented a, social, a certain social claim on at least a certain minimum level of basic equality in the distribution of resources. But this is also at the same time that after the Civil War, big, huge industries started to emerge, big monopolies for the very first time, uh, you know, armor, the big monopoly in uh, meatpacking, 
the Rockefellers and oil, Carnegie and steel. I mean, these big robber barons were coming out of the Civil War economy. And the last thing they wanted is a block of states and representatives that would say that they should have to pay, you know, relatively higher taxes for schools and homes for the blind. The last thing they wanted was a subset of governments that would say that, you know, unions should be allowed and, and governed by law. They certainly didn't want anyone who was going to try to prevent them from opening and closing and regulating immigration however they may choose, letting in a lot of people from one area, like, say, southern Italy, but closing off others, like from China with the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, to regulate labor and to be able to exploit the maximum number of, of people. It's the last thing they want. So ultimately, they just result to align with the old former slave owners who, using mobs and killing and stuffing ballots, just rigged every single election in the South from 1874 to 1877 uh, by killing people, hanging people, and stealing the election in order to reestablish the rule of racism. So totally abrogating all and any form of democracy openly, flagrantly, uninvestigated, uh, in many cases by the government, but even when investigated and proven, nothing was actually done, like in the 1875 elections. And, you know, ultimately it led to what we know to be Jim Crow, which was then, you know, taken down by the civil rights movement. But I think it is important to note that American democracy as we know it today, uh, and as it has historically evolved, whatever its lofty ambitions, has always turned a heavily repressive eye to forces that have sought to include in the idea of democracy, the idea that some form of social or economic rights should be guaranteed to, 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 to everyone and that workers should have some level of right on the job and control of the resources of society. And that speaks very much heavily again to the foundation of the country and what they were trying to do, which is enshrine the rights of a certain subset of elite people with circumscribed popular participation. And when it gets beyond those bounds, uh, and people start to use the levers of democracy to drastically transform the social landscape, then it becomes a problem. And you see democracy becomes uh, more of an afterthought than the actual sort of foundational reality of the country. Look at McCarthyism, look at COINTELPRO. Yeah, Eugene, um, there is a, a little dosed fact I want to drop here really quick. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, the post-Civil War period, I mean, obviously there was just an incredible amount of optimism and potential for things to go forward in a really progressive way. I mean, there's that amazing drawing. People can look it up of all the first black congressmen um, during Reconstruction after the Civil War, all the first black elected officials, which was a major turn of events from, you know, just 10 years prior, the status of black people in the United States. Um, And so there was this there was this possibility, as Abby mentioned, that the U.S. actually could become a democratic and equal society. And all that potential was there. And and in a way, there was was a mandate there. Um, But the but then, of course, through the use of terrorism and fascism, that was all completely crushed and destroyed, which which I think we're going to talk a little more about. But the the fact that I wanted to bring in here for people is uh, one of the ways that was done, the way that all of these people suddenly became disenfranchised after, you know, winning the right to vote through a a massive war where tens of thousands of of formerly enslaved people uh, uh, took part in that fighting as soldiers, as spies and things like that. Uh, so many people may be familiar with the term 
grandfathered in, like you are grandfathered into something, I think it's in the popular lexicon, that actually comes from a clause in this post-Civil War period where for people to vote, you could only vote if your grandfather had voted, which meant that an entire generation of black people in the U.S. could not vote because their grandfathers were enslaved. Yes, that's that's right. Uh, the new, you know, sort of post-Reconstruction state constitutions, um, you know, in it's like 1890s, I think 1908, 1909, uh, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, I think Oklahoma too actually had a grandfather clause, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, they started to be established, actually, interestingly enough, in the 1890s, because that really introduced a period of uh, known as populism, where poor white farmers, especially and poor black farmers, built this huge movement of millions of people uh, that, you know, had people in Congress and senators and controlled states, and uh, they supported equality between blacks and whites. So they had a sort of very unique position in the South at that time and were also the victims, the populist movement of vicious, vicious terrorism. And so the suppression of the populist movement in the 1890s, this, you know, again, memory holds really uh, quite unique instance of, of quote unquote, cross racial unity in the millions for the interest of, you know, average everyday poor indebted farmers and workers. that after that they had to start changing these constitutions to make sure that there was official bars um, and that they didn't have to just use terrorism, but that the rules themselves would prevent black people from voting um, in particular. And so they would put in these grandfather clauses and these new uh, uh, state constitutions going into the turn of the century. So it's really a, an amazing uh, piece. I think it was 1915 that the grandfather clause uh was ruled unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court. And that's why I think most things started to move to, you know, quote unquote, literacy test and, and things like that. And a lot of poor whites ended up becoming more disenfranchised. What's the literacy uh, tests? Say that again? Well, explain the literacy tests really quick. Yeah. So to, I guess to register to vote, you had to take a super subjective, like literacy test, quote unquote, which often would require like soup, like something wild like you have to be able to recite by memory any two sentences of a state constitution um just randomly right so like you'd have to know everything in the state constitution and stuff like that uh to try to make it extraordinarily difficult and that's the history really the a lot of the the freedom school concepts in the civil rights movement and certainly with the uh, the Voting Rights Project under September Clark were doing in terms of schooling people about how to register to vote because they were all these bizarre, arcane uh, rules that they would have. And the registrars had, you know, almost oftentimes total leeway to ask people to do different things. Sometimes they would, you know, offer an interpretation of something and they would determine whether or not your interpretation was correct. So the whole goal was to do everything possible to make it difficult um, to do. And so it was actually many poor whites, of course, who would then also not be able to, to vote because they weren't able to pass these tests. So the need to suppress the black vote was so great that, you know, the racists were willing, despite their rhetoric, to disenfranchise tens of thousands of poor whites as well um, for the greater goal of maintaining this, this Jim Crow terrorist dictatorship. Well, uh, really quickly, there's a comment in the chat from Ex Machina that says that 
one of the questions on the literacy test in Louisiana was how blue is the sky or something like that. What the fuck? Jesus Christ. I mean, well, it's crazy to think that this is still happening today. Like, they are willing to disenfranchise tens of millions of people in this country to impose these laws today, right, that really do have the same goal. <laughs> like, let's be honest about what these laws are designed to do and who they actually disenfranchise. It's pretty stark when you look at the breakdown. And I have to remind people that five years later, right, is when women finally got the right to vote. It has barely been a century since women's suffrage movement, you know, and, and it's just incredible that this was a struggle women were fighting since the Civil War. And until then, basically half of the population had no democratic rights. And I do also want to say this, that it's really essential to point out that even by the time women and African-Americans had formally won the right to vote, the genocide of Native peoples was still ongoing. Uh, what was called the American Indian Wars was happening until 1924, where, okay. of course, the rights of these people were not just disregarded, but there was actually a death penalty implemented for simply participating in their culture. Like, for example, the spiritual ritual of the ghost dance that was basically seen as like, uh, you know, yeah, like basically a protest of <laughs> westward expansion and was made illegal by the U.S. military where they would literally just give themselves the ability to execute you on site if you were doing this ritual. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a big topic that I don't want to dig too much into, but I feel like in the context of talking about democracy and with all of the treaties that were supposed to be the foundation of a set of rights for the indigenous people of this land were completely cast aside. These people are now essentially pushed to the outskirts of society in sacrifice zones or concentration camps. And it's extreme. I mean, it, some of these regions like Pine Ridge today are as impoverished as like Haiti. I mean, it's really fucking crazy that this is how we've treated these people. Um, but but I want to go back to the civil rights movement because um, I think a lot of Americans associate the civil rights movement of the 1960s with the end of legalized segregation, right? You're talking about Jim Crow, this apartheid system that was present in this country for so long, so palpable, in fact, that just our parents, I mean, grew up in in this context. I mean, segregated water fountain. It's just like fucking crazy that like my mom like grew up at a time where Jim Crow exists. It's like that's how new this mm -hmm. is, right? And it had everything to do with voting rights because, you know, despite being literally like a century after the Civil War, a lot of black Americans still really couldn't vote, right? And it wasn't until the 1965 Voting Rights Act that this changed. So let's fast forward to today because we see this constantly. Like the Supreme Court has essentially like overseen the continual erosion of the Voting Rights Act. And I don't think people really understand how essential that piece of legislation was and what it was the outgrowth of, like many years of, of militant struggle um, to try to enshrine these rights. And then, of course, just it's c continuously eroded and callously kind of rejected by the institutions today that are trying to disenfranchise black people in the same exact way. Yeah, no, I mean, it really is amazing to see some of the rollbacks in, in things that you would thought were sort of settled law, if you will, given that the civil rights movement is, you know, still even people who were 
suppressing voter suppression laws now, you know, say they love Martin Luther King. But, you know, I think one of the, the important factors to recognize is that really you had uh, tens of, or really millions and millions of people who have been deliberately denied the right to vote, an active state embedded interest that we're trying to use not only the extra legal power of groups like the Ku Klux Klan, but the formal legal power of all the institutions of the state to prevent people from voting. And the Voting Rights Act was explicitly designed to ban those practices and to set up a legal mechanism by which no one would be able to do the same thing ever again. So you would not have a Jim Crow type situation in any other format, because of course the laws are, are neutral in that sense. So it is a legal framework set up to prevent institutionalized discrimination in voting. And ultimately, there are elements of it, and sort of the big thing that everyone talks a lot about, and the nature of, of what's happened, uh, the, the gutting of the, the Voting Rights Act in 2005 was the end of, there are other elements to it, but one of the this is sort of the centerpiece, was the end of something called pre-clearance. And basically in the Jim Crow South, places where there had been a huge and long history of you know, racial exclusion and voting, there was a number of voting changes that those states could not make without the Department of Justice signing off on it, the thought being that uh, they would be less likely to approve anything that would be outright discriminatory. Not always true, but certainly at least potentially uh, a check on the unparalleled power of the states that had upheld Jim Crow. So uh, the irony is at that time is that rather than eliminating preclearance, what really needed to happen is it needed to expand because what you saw happening was outside of the South, especially in states like Wisconsin and states like Kansas, but also Ohio that were, you know, under these Republican administrations in particular, but not all Republicans, some Democrats too. And they were engaging in these widespread you know, we've normally called it voter suppression, but a lot of it was really voter purging. And it started in Florida in a big way in the year 2000, um, you know, there with uh, and a little bit before then Governor Jeb Bush and, you know, had expanded in this huge way and has expanded in this huge way since then, where millions and millions of people on a regular basis through all sorts of arcane and ridiculous ways are culled from voting lists. And because of millions of mistakes in voter databases, many people are incorrectly, millions of people purged from voter lists and from voter rolls. And there's deliberate attempts in many of these states, you know, nearly 30 states at one point back in 2016 were using a system that was doing this. Um, you know, there may be a similar number of states running similar schemes. Now, all sorts of situations to try to make it so that a smaller number of people uh, to minimize basically the number of people who respond to almost all of the types of communications to prevent being purged from the voter rolls. So you saw, uh, among other things, along with these voter ID requirements, more states starting to obviously use institutional methods, just like the literacy test was not supposed to be racist. I mean, that's, you know, you see now they say, well, the voter ID, it's not this, it's not that, it's not racist, it's, it's towards everyone. Right, but who does it affect? So you know, it's like you exactly. hear that all the time. Who is it impacting? Exactly. And so, it, and, and, and there's actually a, a phrase for that. It's called disparate impact in the law, right? That you don't have to, <laughs> and if we really want to be controversial, 
that to some degree is exactly what critical race theory is really about. The idea that neutrally sounding things that are written to seem like they don't affect a certain group of people are designed as such. So at the exact time this is becoming a wider spread phenomenon in voter laws in the United States in the wake of what we saw in Florida in the year 2000 when Bush stole the election um, was this massive increase in this attempt of voter suppression at the same time the Supreme Court and the Bush administration is de-emphasizing the idea of, uh, you know, really gutting the laws and then de-emphasizing the enforcement of the laws that do exist that were brought up in the civil rights movement to make sure that the right to vote is, you know, that everyone who's eligible to vote can go out and vote, essentially. Right. And we have to mention the fact that the Supreme Court itself is just this highly undemocratic institution. I mean, the lifetime appointments of these people who serve till they die, it's a tiny group of unelected people. And what's amazing about it is they actually have the ability to overturn legislation that is achieved democratically. So it's just like, what? Um, But yeah, I mean, to your point, the fact that this these purges happen and it's to the level that they could actually swing elections. Um, as investigative journalist Greg Palast has uncovered in his documentary films and his research that these people in the tens of thousands, right, are kicked off because of everything that you just outlined. This is all by design. This is all by design. And um, and it actually could have exceeded the number of votes that Clinton lost by in certain states, according to Greg's research back in 2016, which always brings me to the point, you know, it's kind of like the Electoral College. I always thought like, you know, of course, the Supreme Court decided our election in 2000. And then in 2016, when Hillary lost in such a incredible way, um, such a groundbreaking election decided by the Electoral College that cemented Trump as our ruler. And and I really did think then that the Democrats were going to try to initiate to to take away the Electoral College because I was like, OK, now, like they can't just allow this to continue now that, you know, it basically gave the way to someone like Trump. But but what you saw was the opposite, which is the doubling down of this failed system, because they don't want to question the sanctity of the institutions that gave them power. Right. That that facilitated all of this. Um, and it's just fascinating because it's the same thing with the voter ID laws. Like it's like them shooting themselves in the foot. It's like the Democrats know that these initiatives and these laws actually hurt their base, but their acquiescence and groveling to the Republicans, I guess, unless they're benefiting somehow and just, you know, losing perpetually. Um, it is fascinating that they don't do more. You know, the only person I even like barely hear talking about this is like Stacey Abrams. It's like, where the fuck is everyone? These laws are extremely detrimental and they're costing tens of thousands of people from having basic abilities to function in the society and our so-called democracy. And my God, I just thought of this that I couldn't even believe that I didn't include in the outline in the beginning, the felon disenfranchisement in this country. I mean, good God, in, I mean, we're the biggest prison system in the world. I'm talking to the author of Shackled and Shackled and Chained, but like million, I mean, over 5 million Americans are prohibited from voting as of today due to just arbitrary shit, you know, convicted of felony offenses that could completely wildly vary um, of severity and that these vary state by state. But this is, this is a huge problem that over 5 million people are completely prevented from voting yeah. because of prior convictions, Eugene. Totally, 
totally. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there. I mean, you think about something like the Electoral College, which should be totally anachronistic. I mean, I, I think almost every single person in the United States who considers the elections to be in any way, shape, legitimate, considers them legitimate because allegedly the people who get the most votes win. So the idea that there would be this sort of holdover from a time where that was not necessarily the case, and essentially have an indirect election of the the because now the way electors are picked and things like that, it, it's also super opaque and no one knows exactly what's really going on and it's really not that relevant because I think actually most states now require electors to to actually vote in favor of what the popular vote is. So why even keep something like that? But I think that's partially why I think that it, it isn't a big deal to some degree is is the sort of bipartisan or, or the deeply partisan nature of the criticisms that people don't necessarily see, you know, what's happening behind the screen. Like when you look at the like the arguments that Trump and the supporters of Trump are making around electors and things like that in the context of the presidential election. I mean, these are really coming from the most elite theories of how the Constitution is written, that the nature of things like the Electoral College means that the impact of the popular vote and also the influence of the legislatures and the governors and the state secretaries, so these you know other state officials, to potentially overrule the will of the people, which you know to some degree I, I don't know if that is exactly the intent of why the electoral college is there uh, and other elements of the constitution, but it certainly is there because people were raising those issues and things like the electoral college, the three fifths compromise, which sort of the three-fifths compromise of counting slaves as three-fifths of human beings in terms of how you would apportion seats in the House of Representatives was also a compromise that helped allow the Electoral College come to be because uh, the, the number of electors would be apportioned in the same way. So slave owners getting inordinate power by virtue of being wealthy slave owners. Um, so property giving you more rights than other people, which is notable that that's enshrined deeply in the Constitution. But these were compromises, right, uh, between those who wanted to have total elite power and those who felt you had to give people some leeway. But why they would still exist today is, is shocking. The filibuster, I mean, you know, there was no real filibuster, you know, issue in terms of, like, rules around it until, I think, 1919. Um, you know, it's a completely... The Constitution gives the Senate and the House the right to make their own rules on pretty much every single issue. So, I mean, it's just a complete whim. But it does in impact uh, the ability to make significant change because it raises the bar quite high in terms of the members of the body uh, in the Senate, which is already chosen and exists in such a way to favor, you know, not majority rule, but minority right, right, since, you know, Idaho has the same number of senators as California. And so when you have that kind of system and you have these kind of rules and you have the people who are making the rules controlled by the biggest, richest interest, they do have an interest in maintaining these anachronistic realities. The Supreme Court can have any number of people on it um, that you want it to have. There's actually nothing sacrosanct about nine people, but we're told it's a crazy radical idea. But they don't want to change the rules because, again, the rules were set up to protect elite interest of you know, those who engage in finance and commerce. And it's the people who engage in finance and commerce that control the politicians now. And they, they think that sounds pretty good, just like the founding fathers did. And so that's why these weird anachronistic things can be used and abused in order to, uh, you know, entrench elite interests 
because obviously they serve a, a very important role, but it does serve a very negative role from the point of view of, of our, you know, lives. I feel like this is worth exploring a little bit more because it is totally nonsensical that the Electoral College exists today. There are 10 other countries that have Electoral Colleges and they're all just very random. Um, it, it makes no sense for the system that we have. And it's exactly what you're saying, this arcane, archaic principle um, that completely distorts the notion of democracy and, in fact, it, it contradicts it completely. And I want to talk about the state senator thing because I think the Electoral College thing is almost like this is this to me is the craziest actually out of everything else the fact that there's wildly disproportionate representation coming from some states versus others and when you have a state like California with i don't know fucking 30 million i think even more people live in the state the the world's fifth largest economy right but we still have the same amount of senators as um like why like a I don't know Wyoming or whatever you know like everyone everyone has two state senators and you know these some of these states have under a million people yet they have the same power in Congress as California as Texas as Florida it just doesn't make any sense can you shine a little bit more light on just exactly like what I mean are there any quotes are there any just like shocking dosed things about just laying this shit out because it's been so warped again to basically insinuate that if this was reversed somehow, like if the states all had equal representation, that like liberals would run roughshod over the whole country, we would completely dawn. It's like, yeah, well, that's because we're, there's more people living in these cities in these states. Like, why is that okay? Why is that okay that we have no say at all? And like, Wyoming can determine this or that, but like, fucking the world's fifth largest economy basically like has no say like when you're comparing us all yeah i mean i i think it's, that it's a really good question I, I mean i think people are often told like oh this is such a tech it, it would be such a terrible thing to not have something like the senate but it really just feels like how if you claim you have a democracy is it a terrible thing that the places where most people live will generally set the tone for what the policies are of the country. I mean, obviously, everyone is not going to support every decision. But to just arbitrarily say that the majority of people in the country essentially have to accede to, uh, you know, the, the minority of people in the country on, you know, any issue of particular note seems to me to be profoundly undemocratic. I mean, it's just hard to say. I mean, certainly I think the idea of protecting the right of the minority is certainly, you know, an important democratic ideal. But obviously, I think things like the Senate are, you know, ridiculous. I mean, as I said uh, earlier, you know, Madison saying it should, the role of the Senate should be to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority, to protect the the. the rich against the poor. So if that's what they're saying, they're setting it up for, then you think when you look at it now, whatever you want to say about it, then doesn't it seem anachronistic? But I mean, you can also to me say the same thing about the House of, of Representatives. I mean, obviously, there are more people. I mean, I think the number of citizens per congressional district is like 700,000 um, or something like that. But you could also argue that that in and of itself is also 
ridiculous. I, I mean, that there's 300 some million people in the country and there's like 500 people in the Congress. Um, I mean, that seems pretty low, honestly. I mean, I'm 595. <laughs> uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I mean, it just feels if you live in huge places uh, and you see you have two senators in Wyoming, but one congressperson, that's how few people there are. Well, what kind of sense does that make? Uh, have two senators and one congressperson. And then you look at these slightly densely packed areas. I mean, to have, you know, you look at someone, uh, these districts, I mean, a lot of them, of course, because they're gerrymandered, they look, you know, ridiculous anyway, but they're stretching across places that are so different that it, it just makes you, it, you can see that even the House also is underrepresenting. I think the Supreme Court is underrepresented. When you look at the number of people in the country and the actual realities, I mean, <laughs> You could argue that the whole system of states doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, we really live in metropolitan statistical areas. And in some places like L.A., that's all in one state. But in things like New York, it's really New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And that's what they say on the map. In fact, it goes all the way to Pennsylvania. Um, in Philadelphia, it's Philadelphia and New Jersey. Uh, in D.C., it's D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. If you live in these places, it's all one place, um, even though it's technically in different states. So, you know, what sense does it make? for all of these compact, you know, areas where everything is related to each other because of the economy to all then be separated up in different states. How democratic is that? So the whole way it's set up really mitigates towards having, you know, a, the narrowest possible representation. And, you know, all of that, there's a lot of different things that could be said about it. But then, you know, ultimately it lends itself towards elite institution building that tends to protect the status quo. So, again, that's built into the status of how the the thing is built, the system itself. Well, absolutely. And you just outlined so many important points that are dosing the fuck out of me just in, jo in the sense of... Dose. <laughs> Dosed. <laughs> in the sense of just how our society functions and how it's run. And just as the population continues to proliferate, the fact that these institutions just remain the same, right? It, none of them are adapted or evolving. And in fact, we just keep going back to hold on to the relics that just make no sense um, according to how we all operate today. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, of course, obviously the Electoral College and the state Senate system was set up uh, to protect property owners and to, you know, the opulent and the wealthy and all that. But wasn't it also be, like the Electoral College specifically, it's like like they just sent some dude on a fucking horse, like like oh, whatever what D.C. was, and it was just like we literally can't go there, so we're just going to send some guy and like that. Like who were the electors? Like who, who were these people at the beginning? Why were there so few to just basically be like, yep, like I'm the guy who's now speaking for this one town or whatever fucking – hundred miles away <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well the electors definitely at the time were sort of a, a complex group of of people really i mean the whole so the whole thing about the electoral college when it came in was this idea of the discussion of how should the president be elected and you know there are a lot of different ideas of how the president should be elected uh, how long the president should serve and so on and so forth. And they had to come up with a, a compromise more or less about what the different uh, proposals were going to be. Some people were saying that the, they should be elected out of the, the Congress. There was, and that was, uh, you know, one of the main plans. Some people were saying it should be elected by governors and states. There was another thing saying there should be like two presidents or like an executive team. 
that would be elected by the legislature. So it wouldn't even really be a president. It would be like an executive thing. So anyway, long story short, they had to come to some sort of compromise about how the president was going to be elected. And in the context of the discussion, the feeling was that Congress and the election of the president should be separated to create another center of power, right? So this is the idea of the separation of powers playing out between the different areas of the debate over the Electoral College, um, and that ultimately there should be some form of popular participation to the person being elected in the executive having some level of, of popular mandate, but that it, there should be a way to do it where there would be a limited more limited group of people that would basically be elected first and then those people would then agree on like who the president was going to be and so to some degree you know it's sort of indirect representation for the people who were eligible to vote and so they came up with the idea of the electoral college and in order to get the slaveholding states on board many of which you know promoted a, a different view and a different plan they said well we'll decide it the same way as the Congress is, where the slaves will count as three-fifths of a person, each individual slave, which meant that in the Electoral College and the picking of the president, the South would have a similar disproportionality, be overrepresented in the Electoral College, just like they were in the Congress, which was, of course, you know, a protection against anyone making any laws that would be against slavery and electing presidents. It would be much harder, basically impossible, to elect a president that was against slavery. So the Electoral College wasn't specifically about slavery per se, but a major element of it was to make sure slave owners essentially had a veto over the president, just like the three-fifths compromise was to make sure they had a veto over Congress, essentially, um, in terms of, of how it was. It's also why in the Constitutional Convention, there was a defeat of a clause that would allow the Congress to nullify state laws um, you know, that went down because of the slave owners trying to you know, make sure that there wouldn't be anti-slavery legislation. Now, it, they didn't really succeed in a number of ways, but it came up as an issue in the Constitutional Convention. So anyway, long story short, you can see the Electoral College, one of many compromises that existed, um, just like the creation of the Senate and things like that, around this idea of trying to create something that was indirectly representative of a broader number of people than those who are really going to be making the decisions and would get appointed and elected to the positions, um, but enough that it also had some level of legitimate popular participation so it wouldn't be too easy for any one group or faction to seize control of the whole machinery. Yeah, we could all pretend yeah. like we have a fucking say, we all participate in the charade of the elections and voting is pushed down our throats. Vote or die, baby. Vote or die. Remember that one? Puff Daddy and shit pushing that. It's like it's just so crazy because these are the electors are appointed. Like all of these people are political insiders, and I I know that you said that they like have to vote with. I I don't even know if that's true. I mean, do they actually have to vote for who their rep like who their constituencies are voting for? Because because I thought that was the whole thing in 2016 where it was like we actually didn't know because it's kind of like a black box. It's like these people can just go and fucking you know if someone's friends with Hillary Clinton they can just be like all right like we don't actually care ultimately because at the end of the day that's why we exist to override the will of the voters. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a complicated question uh, because, you know, most states now do require or do have some, you know, law 
that essentially more or less bind the electors to cast their ballots for the winners of the popular vote in some way, shape, or form. I think in like Maine and Nebraska, uh, there's like slightly different situations there. Um, there's some who I think like it's like I, anyway. There's the state popular vote and the congressional popular vote. Well, that's, that, that's good, I guess. Um, but in most of the country, it's there. But you know, sort of like what you know, how how constitutional are those laws, you know, I think is a question that a lot of people are more or less kind of, you know, considering uh, some of the, it's a lot of the debate about what's going on. And there's something called a faithless elector who are people who, um, you know, vote in a different way than which they had been pledged and they actually get to the vote count and it almost never really happens. But yeah, I mean, theoretically, I think that it's definitely true that there is potentially way there is a potential reality that electors could do something different than what the vote said, basically. And let me let me just jump in here because I think that it's like despite that, and I get that there's laws in place that like you know purport to like protect our fucking i don't even know like the will of what we do and shit but the undemocratic side effects of having the system is just all-encompassing i mean the fact that like half the country first of all doesn't even engage because it's like what's the point i mean candidates don't even bother to visit most states right because california's bought in for an automatic democratic party win why why bother going there why bother fucking with anything in california or new york utah red state don't don't even fuck with that. Arizona, red state in the 2020 election, like literally like over 95 percent of all campaign events were held in just 12 states. What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, being swing states, of course, they have different issues that that appeal to them than like the solid red or blue states. So it's literally political candidates catering a program to a minority of the population. And then, of course, you have this bizarre ritual of the Electoral College, like Michael Moore in his documentary Fahrenheit 11.9 shows just how just absurd the whole thing is. They have this somber ceremony where they're carrying the Electoral College receipts into like a child coffin. It looks like a baby coffin. Yeah. And they have like pallbearers carry this. You can look up um, Electoral College ballot box and it's like this little old box with like belts holding it shut <laughs> and they like carry it in all like somberly in this like funeral procession just kind of bizarre yeah the whole thing is just so bizarre but the fact that everything's catered to just a couple states because it just completely nullifies uh everything else going on in the country and you mentioned gerrymandering and i think that this this is really interesting too i mean the maps are completely insane totally arbitrarily carved out And there's extreme consequences that go along with this. I mean, look at countless people, including Dennis Kucinich, right, including Nithya Raman here in L.A., a DSA adjacent councilwoman. Both are – well, she's being attempted to be redistricted right now to be pushed out of office. But Dennis Kucinich was pushed out of office because he was gerrymandered out of his district. It's like something that's kind of in the background. It's like, oh, like, yep, gerrymandering and redistricting. It's like, how is this legal? How does it happen? Because this is a very interesting aspect that is a blatant undermining of our democratic rights because it's so insidiously done and it completely feels like we have no control over 
whether or not this happens. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just when you, you do just think about it. I mean, there are so many things that you really don't have, you know, any control over in the context of, of, of how our our so-called rights can can be apportioned. So, yeah, I mean, I think when we when we look at, you know, all of the I mean, it, it, Eugene. Yeah, sorry. I was oh, thinking, yeah, no, it's it's a lot. You're like, how do I even? <laughs> how do I? There's even a lot continue? there, and I honestly got sidetracked on electors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, because you know, talk about things that you can't can't control in the context of 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 it all. I mean, maybe I'll just say this, you know, almost as like kind kind of a point of of summary about so much of this. I mean, you know, on a on a basic level, obviously there is a you know, kind of baseline democratic functioning that's out there and that's possible. But, you know, then on top of that, you have sort of all of this different overlay of caveats to all of the, you know, big, bold, underlying things that we're hearing and that we're told uh, in the context of, you know, civics class or whatever that, you know, obscure all of that reality. And so I think sometimes it gives us the sense that, we don't necessarily have the, the, we don't have the day-to-day ability in many ways to control so many of the things that are around us. And I think it breeds a certain level of cynicism and a certain level of passivity that I don't necessarily think is warranted because I do think that the history of the country shows that, you know, the things that do exist and the nature of the contradictions in some of the rhetoric to some of the reality does create space for people to, to, you know, do and change and improve their lives, but that there's just going to be very clear and very firm, uh, you know, guardrails around it in the context of how far you're going to really be allowed to go and the places where things that seem like they should obviously be democratic will start to run up against uh, the reality of like the quote unquote system and all of these roadblocks and things where it just feels like, well, what is going on? And I think it's really being able to sort of understand and discern sort of where those roadblocks are going to be, where those limits that you're not going to breach are going to be to understand the possibility of change that exists. But I think that there's sort of a, a deliberate attempt to make people feel as they're, they're, they're powerless, and la- powerless and lacking in control as it concerns the sort of day-to-day mechanics of how we're governed, specifically because it also helps to have a system where people are less participatory because they feel that it doesn't matter, you know? Exactly. And there's, there are several points that I want to add to that. But first, I want to discuss the fact that the United States is an empire, right? And I think that this is the big elephant in the room when it comes to American democracy is because so many tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions actually, are just completely subjugated by U.S. financial dom- domination, military domination, neocolonialism, um, the fact that the U.S. government still maintains territories, Right. I mean, <laughs> it's just incredible, like the territorial empire that Americans have completely memory hold. Um, the border of the United States is not, you know, it's not what we think it is. It's it's still far greater than that. And a lot of these people are completely subjugated, no representation. And in fact, this is true for the nation's capital. The District of Columbia still does not have accurate representation. There's a long struggle with that. Puerto Rico. I mean, Puerto Rico's population is larger than 20 states, and you just had a Supreme Court ruling that said Puerto Ricans are not entitled to the same rights and benefits of the U.S. And 
I think that, you know, this all leads me to what you're saying, which is that Americans feel powerless, I think. And I think one of the biggest facets uh, that underpins kind of our demoralization, right, the disenfranchisement that we feel in terms of our ability to change our political system is this kind of normalized dysfunctionality of our government in terms of the two-party system. I call it, like Ralph Nader does, the two-party dictatorship because it really is almost the same. It's just two wings of the same corporate party. There's very little diversity between them, and they agree on almost everything other than just a few token cultural issues that, as we mentioned before, Democrats refuse to fight for and basically just concede to Republicans on almost everything, throwing these alleged value systems out the window every time. Third parties completely blocked out. Even big electoral third parties like the Green Party sabotaged as participants. The 2000 election, Ralph Nader was not able to participate in the presidential debates. Even though there was a third party candidate on the ballot that had significant support, Americans were not able to see him debate anyone or actually see him be taken seriously. And since that disastrous election, instead of blaming the Democrats for bowing out or the fucking Supreme Court for overriding the people's wishes, third party candidates have been blamed, demonized by the system, right? Instead of looking at the abysmal electoral failures, what did they not deliver, right? Going right every time, sidelining the fact that the left has no voice and and not giving anything to the people who are not participating at all. And in fact, they just keep chasing the invisible right voter who will always vote Republican. So anyway, just the constant blaming of people like Nader, Jill Stein, and not the Supreme Court or the Democrats for doing this. And it's just that is by design as well. It's part of the propaganda. It's part of the fact that this monopoly capitalism that not only has designed this system, rules the system, but also rules the media, right? The media plays a very crucial role in formulating, like, uh, like curating our reality and making us feel like we can only do this or that and that this is just the way it is and that third parties are actually not the answer. In fact, they impede democracy, right? They actually siphon votes, even though time and again, study after study shows that these Green Party voters would not vote for Democrats. So anyway, I think that a lot of this is really interesting because it didn't used to be this way. Of course, there were a multitude of different parties back in the day, Eugene. I don't know really how we got to where we are today in terms of these two-party, you know, outgrowths of the exact same kind of mentality here in terms of maintaining the empire, maintaining capitalism, the status quoism. And I do think you know, we have to mention this kind of historical amnesia about the anti-communist repression, the anti-left repression in this country, the union busting. Being a communist was illegal. The Cold War, the mass purges of this kind of mentality, right? The Espionage Act, the Sedition Act, the fact that you could be jailed for simply voicing um, anti-war sentiment, the jailing of socialist leaders like Eugene Debs, who was actually incredibly popular around 100 years ago in this country. I guess just kind of summarize that, if you can, about what impact that has had on the state of our political system today. And I guess just commenting on the two parties. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really important point. I mean, 
you know, there's just like the raw terrorism element of suppressing anti-counter hegemonic, anti-institutional, anti-radical, whatever you want to call them, movements challenging the status quo. I mean, COINTELPRO, McCarthyism. I mean, as you mentioned, going all the way back to the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 and the Adams administration and the attempt of the government to suppress, you know, what they said were revolutionary ideas then, very heavily connected to what was happening in France, the French Revolution. So we've seen historically, you know, we've already talked about reconstruction here. Uh, we've already talked about the integration of the Klan and the cops and the maintenance of Jim Crow. I mean, historically in the country, the drowning of blood and the populace that was a third party that you know challenged at the national level what we've seen time and time again is that there is just a raw brute force element of the ruling elite in the united states who are willing to uh disregard any and all foundations of democracy why do we have the fbi we have the fbi because the bureau investigation was started uh originally under teddy roosevelt under the well even a little before that but in the context of uh, you know, explicitly challenging radical populations, and certainly what? Yes, and it really becomes a much more significant Sorry. fact. And the little, the little Red Scare, which most people don't know about, after World War One, that was probably bigger than McCarthyism, where thousands and thousands of people were deported from the country. A number of newspapers were shut down. Eugene Debs, as you mentioned, was jailed, as were another. Uh, many, pretty much all of the critical radical leaders who were against World War One, and in the aftermath, there was something called the Palmer Raids. People can go look it up. But this was what actually launched the career of J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI in, in, in a big way. So both from its creation and to its actual institutionalization, it was an anti-radical force. I'll give you another one. The whole reason the National Guard exists is to break strikes, because after the general strike in the railroads of 1877, Business owners and the politicians they bought and paid for recognized that a state militia system just was not enough. State militia system and private guards and thugs was not enough. And so they had compelled the government to start promoting the National Guard then. And Holy shit. Afterwards. Wait, that's actually truck. really crazy. And it's also made crazier by like the ice cream truck be in the background, like narrate you while that? you're that's narrating that's this. It's absolutely. That is so crazy that I did not know both dosed facts right there. Dosed. Yeah. Dosed, baby. I just got dosed on the FBI and the National Guard. Sweet. Carry on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, hopefully, uh, you know, it's a good trip uh, taking those. But, um, you know, ultimately, I have to say it really is one major issue. But then you also have some of the other issues that you laid out. I mean, we talked about gerrymandering, um, you know, just the impact of how districts are drawn in terms of the ability of, quote unquote, third parties to be able to win. Uh, you know, and it goes even at a local level even more like when you had the most communist representation on the city council here in New York during uh, really from 1943 to the start of the McCarthyism in 49, 50, 51, you had a lot of them were elected based on proportional representation citywide. So in order to get fewer communists out, they changed it to all district-based elections to make it harder for them because you could pool a lot of votes citywide of radical people, but in each individual district, it was less. So the way the elections are set up, the way the districts are drawn and gerrymandering, and gerrymandering, by the way, is, is, is named for that guy, Jerry uh, Eldridge Jerry, Eldridge Jerry, who I mentioned earlier, 
uh, from Massachusetts who said that democracy was the worst form of government, the founding father. But, you know, the, the style and the nature of how the elections are done, the number of signatures it takes to get on the ballot, which is, you know, outrageous all across the country, the sort of, you know, non-legislated but instituted impact of money and the ability to get your word out to be able to campaign. I mean, if you're working at Amazon 12-hour shifts, right, it's going to be a lot harder to campaign for office than if you're like some rich person who can just live off your income or get a leave of absence and still get paid from your law firm uh, or whatever it may be, right? So you think about all those little things that are also kind of built in that then also mitigate against sort of third parties. But if all the districts were drawn better to emphasize uh, you know, poor people and working class people, uh, you would probably see more third parties. If you had more of a limit on the role of money in politics, you would probably see more parties come about. And we've seen at different times in history, and you alluded to this, that there have been, and it's always really at times of great turmoil, like the 1850s and the lead up to the Civil War. You know, the Republicans emerged, but you had the Free Soil Party, you had the so-called Know-Nothings, you had all these different parties that were starting to emerge as the society was starting to um, you know, feel different ways about different things. And this goes, again, back to the issue of the Senate, right, and who has more voting power, because you see at that time, and you also see in the 1890s where you had multiple parties, 1880s, 1890s, that, you know, different regions tend to move in sort of compact ways uh, behind certain third-party movements in relationship to sort of the social and economic conditions of various regions and those regions coming together and allying with one another. So you look at where the country is now, um, and I think it's a similar situation, quite frankly, where you've got, you know, a vastly distorted political system where the vast majority of people who are concentrated in certain geographic areas want a very different type of country and politics than that which the system delivers. And I think that, you know, it's, it's a limited system, right? Like the five-party system gave way to another two-party system with the formation of the Republicans. Um, but it does at least, I think, speak to the fact that institutionally, even though there are many, many hurdles, I also think there's still a history and a possibility for something to, to for the contradictions to break apart the two major parties and on the basis of real things happening and real differences in what direction the country should go, that there's more possibility in the American political system despite all those hurdles. But I think the point, your general point you're making is true, is that the system itself is not designed to produce any transformative change. It's designed to prevent transformative change at all costs, best case scenario to allow limited change. So if we want to talk about transforming things, you have to talk about a very different modality, which goes back to the question of what kind of constitution you should have and why, whether it should or should not be revisited, as we discussed earlier. Exactly. And I want to just reiterate a, a comment that, uh, again, another dose comment, gerrymandering is from a guy who basically said democracy is the worst form of government. So that's just a really incredible fact right there. But yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to just say, you know, super PACs, the money controlling elections, the fact that the Supreme Court ruled that corporations are in fact people and have protected speech in terms of their money, you know, financial contributions and how it completely dominates every aspect of our lives and dictates, you know, our basically how we can interact with this system, Eugene. And what what I just find as a dosed kind of moment as you've been talking about all this, it's like even if we didn't have money in politics, because a lot of people are like, oh, money in politics, it's like the biggest issue of our time. But really, 
the way that this was all institutionalized almost kind of lends itself to like it it almost doesn't matter because of how disproportionate it was all fundamentally created right and how that was never changed or evolved and so the money is almost an aside um to the fact that that needs to be challenged right and of course if we had ranked choice voting or if we had some sort of leeway that we could actually have avenues to explore third parties but that has been systematically crushed and designed um, and of course, like, as I said before, demonized, ridiculed, where you're like, you are blamed, like literally you're blamed if you dare to want to vote green or socialist or anything. And, you know, you yourself have run for presidential campaign before in this country and, you know, representing a party that has worked their asses off for months and months and months to get ballot access. And it's still nearly impossible in several states across the country. You mentioned this as well, that the vast majority of the people in this country support things like paid maternity leave, government-funded child care, minimum wage increases. I mean, these are all overwhelmingly like, you know, 60 percent, 75 percent, full abortion rights even, 60 percent. And it really shows you these manufactured outrage cycle campaigns by, you know, like things about critical race theory, things about abortion and gay rights, when really the majority of the country are kind of behind these things and in fact want much more than what the government provides. But of course, they're all made into these wedge issues. And of course, they're all just cast aside because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Oligarchs control everything and we are an oligarchy. This has been proven by the fact that all of our opinions and all of our beliefs and support for these policies means absolutely nothing in terms of the material conditions that come out of the system, no matter who we elect. But I guess let's end it on a positive note, because you also ended your comment by saying, look, we are not a dictatorship, Eugene, right? We're not a fascist country yet, even though we may be on the road to fascism. But we are, you know, there are plenty of avenues today, right? We do have democratic rights we can use to advance things, just not in the way that they tell us that the only way we can do it is pushing a fucking ballot, you know, going into the ballot box every two to four years and just voting. It is possible to use these avenues to transition to new systems where direct democracy, democracy at the workplace can lead to huge advancements of economic and social justice. So comment lastly on kind of taking us into a positive and and then um, we're going to take some calls from people. So definitely join the queue and get on board. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, there's a lot of limitations, like I said, but knowing the limitations knows that there's also possibilities. And the reality is, is people have always changed society. I mean, the reality of like all these quote unquote rights that we have is pretty much all of them were defined in the context of some group of excluded people looking to assert their right to be included. So whatever contradictions, whatever limits there may be, there are obviously things that I think speak very heavily to the idea that things can indeed change and be changed, even if in limited ways, in ways that are still important and that are significant in people's lives. And I don't think we should look the other way at that. I mean, I do think that obviously a big piece of changing things for the better is to eliminate a lot of these ridiculous, archaic assumptions that are rooted in the Constitution and have a new governing compact. But I think at the end of the day, we also have to recognize that the sort of day-to-day -day struggle uh, 
and the day-to-day struggle that's already existed to improve people's lives does exist on a plane of trying to seize these levers. You have the right to strike, right? Which means you have the right to collectively bargain. So you have the right to be able to come together with your coworkers to demand you be treated in some sort of way you find to be just and equitable on the job and to have some level of control and input into how that job moves forth, that you have the legal right to withhold your labor and use it to shape your working conditions. Obviously, you have the right to vote, but you also have the right to organize political parties and to put out political ideas and agendas. Now, if you don't have a ton of money, it's obviously going to be a lot harder and a lot more difficult, but you do still have the ability to band together as groups of people and act collectively and freely circulate your ideas and try to build a popular majority in order to change things. You have things that I think we should seize onto and fight to protect because whatever their limitations may be, eliminating them obviously will only set back the causes that I think a lot of people care about. So from my point of view, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of hope always and that the, the history of laws and the history of government is that they change, not that they stay the same. Well said, as always, Eugene per year. Everyone check out his podcast, uh, The Punch Out on Breakthrough News. Everything Eugene has done has been really essential, and I recommend everyone to follow his work. Um, let's take some callers now. Yeah, Be- don't go anywhere, Eugene. Yeah, don't go anywhere. We're going <laughs> we're gonna... to take a call. Before I take the calls, I'm just going to let all the callers know, take yourself off mute once I take your call. I'm going to follow the stack. I just wanted to say really quickly, Eugene, I appreciate all your comments. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it really comes down to it's that the, the U.S. democracy, it's, this is what capitalist democracy is, where, as you were mentioning, yeah. it's the, the rights of property and property owners that ultimately reigns supreme. And so the right to vote kind of conceals the fact that, like, yeah, like if you, um, ultimately, it's about property rights, like, in the constitution. So like, yeah, if you, if your landlord wants to evict you, he can call the police to come get you out of the apartment. You cannot call the police and say, Hey, my landlord is trying to kick me out on, onto the street. And there's a million other, you know, just same thing with strikes too. Yes. You have the right to strike, but also, uh, the police have the right to come and break strikes and things like that. Um, but really appreciate your analysis here. And I just wanted to reemphasize one thing about the U S as an empire and having these territories. Like if you are in Puerto Rico and born Puerto Rico, Guam, the Mariana Islands, American Samoa, which has the name American in it, the U.S. Virgin Islands, which has the name United States in it. You are born U.S. citizens, but you can vote for president, but they are denied political power. They are denied political representation in these so-called democratic bodies. And so that just one, it just it's just like so mind-blowing to me that this is just a completely hidden reality that you have all these places that are literally part of the United States. And these people are American citizens, yet the Supreme Court just this week said, you are American citizens, but actually you are not entitled to the same rights as American citizens. It's just completely a racist and colonial uh, order and so for the U.S. to lecture other countries about not being democratic enough, while it literally holds colonies and denies the people in those colonies any political power or real political rights, is just really astounding. Well, um, I don't even think I don't even think a lot of Republicans like even knew that Puerto Rico was like part of the country. They did. Like, Trump when, didn't the, know. when the hurricane happened, they were just right. like, "Why the fuck would we do anything about Puerto Rico?" It's like the same as going back to when F- when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and they had to call it the American island of Oahu because no one cared. Everyone was like, why the fuck should we care about this random island in the middle of... They're like, no, it's ours. Yeah, yeah, we no, no, no we have, it's ours, baby. And yeah, at the, at the time, they actually were thinking of calling America Imperial America or Greater America because the 
neat confines of what we know of the United States today just didn't make sense because of all the territorial acquisition at that time. So it is funny, kind of the memory hold nature of, of that, you know, just the fact that the empire was actually much more present in people's minds than it even is today. It's fascinating. Yeah. And of course, Hawaii, you know, is a state, we know it as a state now, was once a colony and was illegally annexed, was conquered in 1890, was actually the first regime change operation by the U.S. that overthrew at the barrel of a gun their government and just illegally annexed it. And it's, uh, you know, the the Hawaiian people still maintain that it was it's still an illegal annexation, which it absolutely is, even though they uh, were able to win or get the statehood rights uh, eventually. But anyways, we're going to go to caller. Johnny is on the line. Johnny, unmute and say hello. Give us your comment or question. Okay, great, guys. Hey, great, great show. Uh, you know, there's no intellectual laziness around you guys. Johnny, you look unmuted, but your okay. volume is... Oh, hey, start, start okay. again, Johnny. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so there's no intellectual laziness around you guys. You, know, you really make you think, right? So uh, it's forcing me to review uh, my strategy, my, my theory. I'm a revolutionist. Uh, I don't believe that electoral politics is going to get us where we need to be, which is a government of and for the people, a more egalitarian government. So I'm going to change my strategy this time, change my approach. Uh, in last shows, I've given theory and then, you know, at the back end, given the strategy. So this time I'm going to be very, very brief about giving a strategy to for revolution. So here it is real quick. Uh, we uh, ask five questions. As a society, we ask and we do this individually. Every person has their own, you know, social media. They call it whatever they want, but they ask five questions. Number one, can you say that we are a government of, by, and for the people? Number two, would you say that we, uh, if we are what we say we are, a democratically elected republic, deserve a vote of Medicare for all? I'm not saying that we're going on strike or whatever, revolution for Medicare for all. But what I'm just saying is that do we deserve a vote? And number three, would you agree with that the most powerful weapon those in power use against working class people is the manipulation of the media, the manipulation of news? So that's the three questions. Here's question number four. Do you believe that you as an individual, as one individual, have the power to make the change necessary to get our country back from neoliberalism? And number four and number five. And finally, this is something that, you know, I just came up with you know, here recently, and which is, are you a neoliberal? So, <laughs> right. Are you new? <laughs> That's the real clincher at the end. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so uh, these people, every individual has their duty to do this, right? And they put on, and so with their, uh, with those questions comes three videos. Number one, a description of what neoliberalism is. Number two, a description of the 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 what is called modern monetary theory the truth about macroeconomics right which is what money is right and number three te, uh lawrence lessig's ted talk on lester land well, how it is that we have uh two elections right and that we really don't have a democracy we have an oligarchy mm -hmm. so once you do that then you tell people this is okay so this is revolution this is how we're going to do it you wear red and white on your body and on your vehicle as you drive down the road and what you're doing by that is you're telling those who have power, uh, you know, you recognize who really has power in the working class, and you're telling them to stop the truck drivers and garbage collectors, stop picking up the trash and stop your trucks, and May 1st, 2022. And uh, what you're doing there is now that you, if we do, if we are, okay, so the demand is three, right? By May 1st, 2022, here's the demand, free and fair elections according to one Lawrence Lessig. Number two, a vote on Medicare for all. Number three, 
uh, Chris Hedges, uh, under the guidance of Chris Hedges, he can identify what uh, free, uh, uh, the free media is like, right? So you either give us those three things. And if you don't, and you actually force truck drivers and garbage collectors to actually go on strike, now it's going to add another three things. And that would be a $500,000 savings bond to every truck driver that went on strike, a 20% subsidy on top of their pay, and the jobs guarantee program. Now, if you've watched the videos and understand modern monetary theory, you understand that the federal government being the issuer of the governments is not in that matter of can we afford it, right? So setting that aside, lastly, to, to close it, if we do go on strike, if we're actually forced to go on strike, then we make those representatives that supposedly represent us make the make a choice. You either give us our government back or you give this type of government a different name. Give it a different name. Uh, Johnny. And, yep. Johnny, lastly, appreciate Yeah. Hold on, Johnny. Oh, Johnny, you came off the queue for a second. Um, um, no, I mean, I, I really appreciate that breakdown, Johnny, and I think it's really, you know, a lucid analysis of, like, the steps that are needed. Um, the I think the first step, though, of, of course, a general strike is really the ultimate goal here because, of course, when you stop capital, that's when the capitalists will listen and actually um, answer the demands of the people. And so, yeah, I mean, it really all starts with organizing and the political consciousness, which is needed to educate people because the vast majority of people in this country are overworked, living paycheck to paycheck. And that's the problem is that because the media is such an efficient propaganda tool, like people don't even know what you're talking about. And so that's where political education and organizing must come in to fill the gap before we can start to organize something like a general strike that really can shut down um, society. And that's that's what needs to happen in order to make them listen to us. And it goes back to kind of that Martin Luther King idea of the poor people's march and occupation of the Capitol. I mean, this was the proto Occupy Wall Street that was completely shut down. And we have completely historical amnesia about what this movement was growing into and what it could have become. And that's giving poor people an economic bill of rights. And so anyway, I, I totally agree with you, but I think it has to start with something much more basic. And that is the outrage and outreach and organizing needed in order to facilitate that. Eugene, if you have anything to add. No, I mean, I think that's very well taken. I mean, you know, that you've you got to move from the margins to the center in the context of political struggle that makes change. But I think the basic thing is true. I mean, most working class and oppressed people, you have one main power over those who own and those who have capital who determine our lives, and that is to withhold your labor that creates all the wealth. So obviously, you know, building organization that's able to move in that kind of way is going to be what's determinant. Tani, you are on the line. Come off mute and say hello. And Eugene, go on mute when you are not talking at this portion because we got both of you on the line at the same time. Thank you. Thank you. Huge, huge fan, so I apologize. So I am, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you great. And thank you for that, Tani. So I'm a huge uh, media and um, pop culture. Your whole conversation, especially like pop culture, took a part in the structure of power. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think it all just is an outgrowth of the economic system that we live in and the fact that neoliberalism has been kind of a defining, reigning ideology. Um, and I mean, it all kind of culminated into the Telecommunications Act, right? Eradication of things like the Fairness Doctrine. All of these things were outgrowths of 
this economic system that was based on privatization. And that was the peak liberal model that everyone thought was actually beneficial, right? And you had actually a Democratic president overseeing one of the biggest um, laws that demolished the idea of any semblance of a free press in this country, and that was Bill Clinton signing the Telecommunications Act. We used to have dozens of different media companies, and of course, all of them have been consolidated and monopolized down to four or five today that control 90% of everything we see, hear, and read. And that is why when um, the internet was created, right, of course, even though that was also an arm of the U.S. government and that there's a whole other host of problems that go along with that, but there was the egalitarian notion that we could all buy into this platform and that we could all have a fair play. And for the first time since this consolidation of the corporate media and as, as basically the subsidization of all media and and um, control by huge, massive corporations. And that's why we see, you know, corporate media today that's basically just driven by defense contractors, banks, oil companies, and the very corporations that we need to be holding power to account that are just essentially functionaries of of the exact same system that they serve and um, basically just act as the voice of the Pentagon, right? Because when you live in a corporate-captured state, the, the media is state media, even though it's corporate-run. So anyway, when the internet was created and we all had these notions that we could all have an equal playing field, and so we bought into these social media companies and thinking that we could all have you know, our fair share, and in fact, a lot of us did grow and did accumulate a lot of um, of an audience, right? telling these stories and, and uplifting voices that were obfuscated or censored from the mainstream media. And of course, that was the big threat, right? And we saw that being the dominant threat to the establishment. And, and in fact, that's exactly what we saw with the DNI report, with the election of Trump, fake news and essentially alternative media was blamed for what happened in this country. And so, yeah. They call you again? They call yeah, they well, they actually said that when my show was introduced on Russia Today, that's when the Russian disinformation propaganda effort really ramped up. They were like, that's when they really like, <laughs> like greased the skids. It's like, that was really hilarious. What did he call you again? I totally forgot. It was like, they basically said that I was fomenting radical discontent in this country for simply covering issues that exist. Just so you know. When I heard that, I said, I, if I any one day open up a podcast, I will call it Radical Discipline. <laughs> I mean, it, it's incredible. It's incredible that they really elucidated that, like, that was the threat. Like, simply what RT did was just fill a void that was left by the corporate media, right? And it was just talking about these issues, talking about real grievances that exist. But that was the threat to the establishment because they want to erase these issues from our purview. They don't want, they want to sanitize our reality. They want to push all these issues off to the margins and all the people off to the margins who don't fit within this night tight package. Um, Because of course, we know that there's very limited parameters of debate that are acceptable in our dominant media spectrum. And that is why the internet had to be tightly controlled and regulated. And that is exactly what we're seeing happen today. And they've been clamoring to do it. And now they have the new Russian war as an excuse. But as we just saw, Google is now essentially a military contractor as well. And so it really is all part of the same structure. I hope I answered your question. Eugene, if you have anything to add. 
No, I mean, I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I think obviously the role the media has played has always been pernicious. I mean, just the fact that you have like the right to vote, but not the fact to have a billion dollars to be able to own a huge media uh, corporation, I think says it all in terms of what the role of the media is supposed to be, what it really is. And, you know, he who has the gold makes the rules. And I think that's what we see in our popular communication. Thank you, Tani, for your call. Thank you so much, Tani. Hey, how are you even still there? Okay, hey, Andrew, I thought you were, I have Andrew on the line, but I'm still here in Tani, which was cool, because I didn't mean to boot you off too early, but Andrew, what is up? Hi, uh, can you all hear me? Yeah, we can hear you great. Great, yeah, it's great to be able to listen and talk with you again, uh, and it's remarkable learning so much that I had no idea about such as the fact that both the FBI and the National Guard, as we know them today, began to grow out of the aftermath of strikes, which I completely had no idea about. I mentioned this in the chat earlier, but um, one of the things that I find most insane about all of this history is the fact that in 1886, the Supreme Court, for all of its faults, that are very real that you described, it ruled unanimously that the uh, when a law is quote-unquote race-neutral in its language but is applied in a racist manner, that's a violation of the Constitution. And yet the entire Jim Crow era was just that. You had laws that weren't explicitly racist in their writing, but they were used to further a racist system, which remained for nearly 80 years after that court ruling. And the fact that the federal government, either deliberately or just due to being incompetent, failed to do anything about it until hundreds of thousands of people marched to DC in the 60s. Like, that's one of the most insane parts of our history that I'm just now beginning to grasp the magnitude of. Eugene. Great comment. Yeah, Andrew. No, no, totally. And I, I, I appreciate that. And I think that that's, it's obviously true. I mean, it speaks to the, I mean, it speaks to the most fickle nature really of the, the judicial system, which is that sort of the interpretive aspect of it, the shifting sands generationally of, you know, who the judges may or may not be determines so much in how things are, are seen, how they're interpreted, how new case law is made, and how so many things are honored in the breach, but not necessarily in, in reality. And I think that we have seen, even now, sort of the redefinition of, of the, you know, many of the laws around voting rights. Certainly when we look at the context of policing in this country and why it's so easy for police officers to get off on the basis of certain standards that there, you know, is such a huge gray area oftentimes to interpret these laws and these rules. I mean, you know, the interpretation of some of the laws that make it easy for cops to get off in terms of killing people are also laws that when they were ultimately passed and ruled on by the Supreme Court were actually making it better than how it was before. Uh, in terms of what the constitutional rights of the cops were to execute people. Now, obviously, they still have far too much leeway to do it. But even in this context, you could argue that most prosecutors and most courts, I think, um, you know, don't really honor the, the true essence of a lot of the uh, what's there and just let people off the hook and claim that they couldn't get a case. But be that as it may, I think it all speaks to 
the subjective nature of it and exactly how the court system was meant to be set up in the first place. I mean, there's very little conversation about the judicial branch in the Constitution. And it was something called the Judicial Act of 1789 that really established the court system as we know it today. So, so much of the court system was deliberately established to create a sort of hyper elite, unelected, lifetime appointed uh, group of individuals who, because of the qualifications, certainly at the time they set up the, the court system, but even now, you know, tend to, again, come from sort of elite reproduction sites, the big law schools and so on and so forth, the major law firms, people who are close to various political donors and so on and so forth, and that it then will reproduce interpretations of the law since they are given that role that tend to often favor discriminatory things that, you know, especially in retrospect on its face, seem to obviously be, you know, against the spirit and the letter of the law. Yeah, um, Lance, I saw you were in the queue and then you dropped off and I know that you were in the queue for a long time the last two episodes. So if you do jump back on, I will accept you. And uh, Andrew, um, I do want to ask you. Oh, yeah, Lance, you're back. Um, so we will get to your call, Lance. Uh, Andrew, I just got to ask, what a, what kind of mic are you on? You sound, yeah, you sound awesome. Great, dude. And you're on a phone. Are you just on your phone? You sound fucking great. Yeah, I'm using the <laughs> mic that came with the uh, headphones. This is like the a... Fuck? All right. Well, you're like, yeah, of all you, our uh, callers, you have you, like, like, email us? Because you sound better than us. You, right. Like, what is that? <laughs> We're still trying to figure out this calling app, and you sound awesome. And, like, I, Eugene, you're on a mic, too. You're just on a headset, too. But you sound like shit, honestly. <laughs> but, it, but, but, so why is, why is that you happening? Like you're in a bank Andrew, call. You're, you sound like you're in, like, a sound studio. But, so, you're, you're jumping to the top of the queue. Yeah. Because, uh, we would just want to hear your great, you got a great voice, too. Yeah. Honestly, um, but you know, I did. Uh, I Eugene, you and and Andrew, your comment kind of brought up um, uh, something I think people might find funny. But like when we talk about these democratic rights that people think are or know are so important, like Abby, you mentioned, like the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, the freedom to assemble, like these are accepted as like core democratic rights that we have in this country. But we see time and time and again that you really don't have them because whenever there are a constitutionally protected act of speech, speech and protest, there's real fascistic repression by the police if they happen to disagree with a certain political issue, you know, like big Trump demonstration, you know, like January 6th and virtually no police presence. You go and take an anti-war march with a, you know, a 10% of the people that were at January 6th and you'll have like a hundred times the number of cops there. And, you know, we can see from Standing Rock and in particular, Abby, you mentioned the Occupy Wall Street movement. So my, my funny story about this is I was arrested in the Occupy Wall Street uh, assault by the LAPD. It was a completely unconstitutional police action. In fact, we filed a class action lawsuit with the National Lawyers Guild and one proved in court that it was completely un- unconstitutional to just raid a peaceful protest and arrest everyone. But uh, prior to that, they, we were all charged criminally. And all we were doing was standing in this park. You know what I mean? Like we, we were all I was given criminal charges and, and a lot of people, everyone I was arrested with, about 300 or so people were given criminal charges. And so the city, of course, under controversy for we, this was protected constitutional rights. This was protected democratic rights, free speech, freedom of assembly. So the compromise said, OK, instead of actually charging you criminal, we'll give you an option if we won't charge you criminally, if you go to a class taught by the LAPD about free speech rights so the lapd can tell you what free speech rights really are and so for my for my unconstitutional arrest 
for constitutionally protected free speech democratic rights. Uh, I had to attend this class by the LAPD of them telling us what it really meant in the Constitution. And really the essential core of the class was you have the right to free speech until we tell you you no longer have the right to free speech. (laughs) So you can go out and peacefully assemble and demonstrate. All those things are protected. But once we say you have to go home, your constitutional rights are gone. And actually you have to go home and we have the right to come and hit you with a club or shoot you with a taser uh, if you say that you don't want to do that. No, it's fascinating. And I also... Um, Lance, we're going to take your call now. Then we're going to get a closing comment from Eugene. And I'm going to take you out with some closing notes and some music. But Lance, what's up? Yeah, hey, yeah, democracy, yeah. <laughs> you know, being a populist, uh, to say something positive. You know, uh, I would say, in terms of uh, being a populist, and I think that I like the theory that says, ultimately, the people are going to be governed only if they if they approve now it doesn't mean that every time there's a peasant uprising it, it, it succeeds but over time if things get really bad it's going to funnel through to the, the lower court courtesans and eventually the king gets assassinated there's a new king you know and not that it, so in other words it works and i would suggest that outside of slavery itself uh in other words you got to keep the people happy at some point because if they get really, really poor in medieval times or whenever, they're going to come with pitchforks because they have nothing left to lose if they're starving anyway. So it will happen. you got to keep a little bit happy. But since slavery, other than slavery in America, there is not more a more powerless group than Jim Crow Southern people of color. And the summer boycott worked. took a couple of years. But there couldn't have been a more powerless people that using their economic power boycotted uh the Selma bus transportation system and eventually won over a period of a few years. So if that can happen, anything can happen. Uh, the, the anti-apartheid thing, I was very directly involved with up at Syracuse University. It was great. Uh, and that kind of that word too. That was pressure, boycotting, forcing divestment of Harvard and all the places that have two campuses, et cetera, et cetera. So this stuff can happen, you know. And I don't know why the people, and this is why being a populist, Eventually, we gotta we gotta blame ourselves. We gotta look in the mirror and say, what are we not doing that Europe did? We saved them after World War II, learned our lesson, didn't treat them draconially like we did Germany and Japan. World War after World War One, and sure enough, they haven't. They're not. They're no. They're about the farthest removed from any kind of world war other than Ukraine. That ain't gonna happen. Europe ain't gonna go for it. But you know, so. What is it about Americans that we can't have many parties like we used to have? And everybody leapfrogged this. They have high-speed trains and all the rest of it. And I think I'll, I'll leave at this point, see what you guys think of this, is that because, you know, any kind of revolutionary tendencies that happened in the 60s, like I think with Miles Little Red Book, he said, you know, revolution could start with academics, the proletariat working class, you know, uh, uh, from, uh, you know, the intellectuals, you know, the academics. It can happen from the – if there's a burgeoning bourgeoisie, that doesn't really have any power, but they've got economic power now, like the handy Italy, other things in Europe. But eventually, he said, I think it was Miles Little Red Book, it's got to eventually, the elites have to back it. Not just the academic elites, but the people that are that 10%, not the 1%, but let's say the next 10%. And those people are so far removed in this generation than they were when I came up as a boomer that the elites aren't scrambling for Look at what happened in the Nixon administration. It wasn't because he all of a sudden got a liberal angel came to him it was because as it called him he called himself a conservative republican to separate himself from the rockefeller kind of liberal republican still existed and yet he did all these things with the epa everybody knows about that it's because he was forced to by the elites by the suburban elites 
See, now I don't care. They're done. They got it the way they like it. And they're not caring about the next generation. And I'll leave it at that. You know, get your thoughts. Lance, thank you so much for your call. Thank you for calling in uh, the, the last several episodes. I'm sorry we weren't able to hear you speak before then, but I really am happy that you were able to talk today because I really liked what you had to say. And it really is so true. The crux of what you're saying is that change is only possible when the elites fear us, right? And that includes the not just the 0.01%, but this includes the 10% of, of the richest in this country that know that they need to change something, that something needs to give in order for them to basically justify saving the system. I mean, let's be honest, that's exactly what happened during FDR. All of the militant labor actions um, forced the hand of government to implement New Deal measures and basically at the end of the day, saved capitalism for the next hundred years. So look, I'm, I, I completely agree with you and it really is all about organizing. It goes back to the notion that we really need to start with the political foundation and understanding of what this country really is. Um, that's why, you know, we do the work that we do. And it, it is up to us to just start generating that consciousness because with that um, comes the organizing necessary to really uh, facilitate these changes. Eugene? No, I think that's 100% correct, right? I mean, the only way people have ever really changed the world in any way, shape, or form is to organize themselves collectively. And then that makes many, many different things possible. It makes collective communication possible. It makes the pooling of funds for resources for better popular communication possible. It makes the confrontation with the forces of the powers that be that look to, you know, repress movements, as we've talked about, able to overcome. Because all successful movements for transformative change have overcome repression the worst of the types of repression. So it really all starts with not just feeling that you are yourself alone and atomized, but looking for like-minded people, organizing into like-minded associations, plotting and planning your strategy on the basis of your combined uh, you know, mental, financial, and human resources. And that's going to be the building block of you know, what's going to be able to move us into a better future. Absolutely. And I do think we are unique in the sense that we are all babies of the empire. We are children of a system that is, we are heavily propagandized, but the problem is we don't know that we are. In fact, we think that we're the freest country in the world, that we can dictate and impose our political system on other countries. And that I think is is the crux of the problem right there. It's kind of the compartmentalization of how we fit into the bigger picture, how we fit into the planet, and the need for a consciousness of international solidarity solidarity and the extension of empathy that goes far beyond our borders and the understanding that our government is actually the purveyor of a lot of violence and oppression around the world and that we have a unique not only privilege of being american citizens but a responsibility to organize effectively and accordingly within this country to hold power to account because we simply are running out of time everyone really appreciate you guys joining in eugene per year Wow. Best guest ever. You can talk about anything. Everyone, please follow Eugene Perrier on all the social media stuff. Go to The Punch-Out. It's a daily podcast briefing. You don't need any other source of news, of course, other than ours. And go to Breakthrough News. Subscribe. Follow Eugene's work. Eugene Perrier, thank you so much for coming on. Dosed! Thank you for having me. It was great. Uh, before you go... 
I just want to say big thank you to everyone who joined us live here. If you're uh, not joining us live, get on the call-in app, follow Dosed with Abby Martin, and you'll see all our upcoming shows when you can join our live audience. We love it, and we know you will love it too. And there's a great opportunity to do that very soon. This Tuesday, a couple days from now, April 26, 1230 Pacific, 330 Eastern Standard Time, Duncan Trussell, the great Duncan Trussell, will be here. Go check out uh, his show, The Midnight Gospel, on Netflix right now, or just listen to the Duncan Trussell Family Hour podcast. Get excited for that. Also, uh, May 1st, I'll tease out a guest coming up. May 1st, 1 o'clock Pacific Time, Daniele Bolele, author, philosopher, and historian. Um, also, just want to take let you uh, take advantage of one cool thing in Colin is if you heard anything in this episode you liked or a previous episode, there's a cool feature where you go to the episode, there's a little scissors icon, and you can cut a clip of whatever fact uh, that you liked, and it makes it very shareable with a visualizer on social media and stuff like that. So do that, tag Abby, and uh, we would love to reshare that. And so uh, also make sure you listen to our previous episodes, which we really love. Our last one with a really cool botanist was a little break from the politics, which we'll be doing from time to time here on Dosed. Thanks again for everyone joining us. Take you out with a little televangel. <laughs>